From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, a podcast about the civil rights and civil liberties questions of our time. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host for this episode. In the last month, we've seen the Trump administration deploy federal law enforcement officers to Portland, Oregon. Those agents have been documented using sharpshooters to maim protesters, sweeping people away in unmarked cars, and attacking journalists, legal observers, and medics with tear gas. The federal government just agreed to withdraw most of the federal presence there, but simultaneously announced they plan to send agents to other cities, including Cleveland, Detroit, and Milwaukee, to, quote, fight violent crime. Critics, including the ACLU, are concerned about how this presence encroaches on fundamental civil rights and are calling for an end to federal abuses. Joining us to discuss the surge of federal law enforcement in the U.S. is Hina Shamsi, the director of the ACLU's National Security Project. Hina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. I want to start from the beginning. There's a perception, I think, that the deployment of federal agents started with Portland, but that's actually not the case. I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through where and when we trace the beginning of this surge. Sure. So I think it's really important to recognize that this is part of a longstanding pattern of over-criminalization and over-prosecution of Black communities, Black-led movements protesting against police brutality, joined by allies to protest against justice and systemic racism. The Trump administration responded with hostility, and we started seeing escalating federal uh, deployment, um, which is layered on top of the injustices of local police that often are what are being protested. You know, we saw that in D.C., um, where there was military involvement as well. We saw a particular pattern in Portland, And now we're concerned about what's going to happen in cities in other parts of the country. And in D.C., we're talking about the incident early June, June 1st, I think, where Lafayette Square was cleared with tear gas, where peaceful protesters were protesting and uh, and President Trump got a clear path to hold the Bible for a photo op. Yes, that's exactly right. I wanted to also bring up that the federal presence actually predates the George Floyd protests. Is that correct? That there is sort of a long history, but more recently, I think in December of last year, there was a movement to sort of have federal law enforcement present in certain cities. Do we trace a connection between that and what's going on right now? We do, because of course, part of what we look at are the systemic issues and the underlying issues. And what you're talking about, Molly, is, is an operation um, that Attorney General Barr announced uh, back in December 2019 called Operation Relentless Pursuit. Um, I hate these names so much. But this is an operation where the federal government essentially pledged to surge federal law enforcement officials to cities around the United States. And that was under the auspices largely of the Department of Justice, the DOJ. And so those were agencies like the FBI, um, 
DA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the U.S. Marshals Service, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. And what they said that they were going to do um, was to work with local law enforcement to investigate federal guns, gangs and drug crimes. Um, But here's the thing. These joint task forces represent militarized, excessive policing and some of the same tactics that we saw happening in Portland and then later in Seattle. Not exactly the same as Portland, but very similar. They're reflecting uh, the tactics that were used um, under under this December 2019 operation. And What's interesting is the Trump administration says they are pushing out these deployments to, quote, control crime and protect America from anarchists. It's really hard to hear this and not think that this is somehow like a page from the 1968 Nixon playbook um, around law and order and sort of playing that as a campaign card. But do we believe the administration's motives are what they say they are? Do we have reason to believe that that's not the full story? Look, I think that There's much about this that we're still waiting to see how it transpires. A bottom line that we see is that this is part of Trump's lawless and racist agenda um, that is being pursued for political purposes as his administration faces so many failures. Uh, whether that's in response to the pandemic or uh, the protests themselves that they've been responding to with brutality and as we head into the uh, elections. I want to turn to Portland now and sort of paint a picture of the federal surge there. Um, Can you tell us what it was like when they got there and also what was the effect of their presence? Sure. And our Colleagues in our Oregon affiliate have been talking about this so so powerfully. There's a long uh, and rich history of protest in Portland, and the communities there had been protesting already. Uh, and in fact, there are lawsuits, including by our colleagues in our affiliate, against the Portland Police Department for their use of tear gas and brutal tactics against um, journalists and uh, legal observers. And these were alongside lawsuits that had been also filed by uh, community and Black-led organizations uh, about the brutal policing of protest, again, against those who were protesting brutal policing. Um, And then what you had was the feds getting involved later under claims that they were there under a federal statute largely to protect federal property. But there's a space uh, near the courthouse where um, that's a traditional place where protesters gather. And that happens in many communities around the country. That's where protests may often happen. But in Portland, what the federal agencies did was that they responded with batons and tear gas and rubber bullets. Um, There were unidentified 
federal officers who essentially, you know, grabbed people and put them into police vans and and took them to undisclosed locations. What, you know, in other countries we are used to calling kidnapping. Right. And it wasn't just protesters. That would be bad enough. But journalists and legal observers and medics were also targeted. The ACLU of Oregon and co-counsel were involved in a lawsuit around that violence. And one of the plaintiffs who is a medic, Christopher Durkee, was helping a downed protester in a fog of tear gas when an officer took out his baton and struck Christopher repeatedly in the chest. I actually want to play a clip of an interview we did with Christopher after the incident. You'll also hear audio of the altercation itself that a bystander had recorded. We've normalized violence. Like, it was definitely certainly not normal before. When they shoot us, it feels more that it's a reminder that they could kill us. That, like, that rubber bullet to your chest, you know, if they wanted to do it, that could be lethal. And Hina, I'm wondering if you can respond to this note about normalizing violence and how the federal presence is in some ways possibly playing a part in that. Absolutely. What our plaintiff describes is federal agents who are sowing chaos, panic, mistrust, and yes, the really high possibility and risk of federal agents normalizing violence against people who are protesting and people who are trying to keep those protesters safe. You know, there's a real irony here. You might think that there might be a legitimate federal response that sends in medical personnel, but no. What was happening in Portland is that the medics were essentially private people trying to help protesters who were being met by federal agents' violence, who themselves then were met by federal agent violence. One point I I am curious about is something that you mentioned about the visuals of federal agents on streets. And, you know, they're wearing army fatigues, often unidentified and very heavily armed. The the posture is very aggressive. And I'm wondering, do we have concerns around the visual that we're seeing? You know, after almost two decades of war, um, we may have become desensitized to the kinds of violence that uh, federal forces, the military, visit uh, upon communities abroad in, in brown and black countries. But there is an intimate connection between the use of over-militarized tactics, equipment abroad, and that which we see happening at home. Um, we know, for example, that there's a program called this 1033 program that uh, essentially takes what they call excess military equipment from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan 
and transfers them to state and local uh, police forces. Billions of dollars have been uh, spent under this program. And, um, you know, for a very long time, the discourse has been more around tinkering with this 1033 program. You know, what kinds of tactics and what kinds of military-type weapons and equipment should go to particular communities. And so we see, you know, armored vehicles in, for example, you know, one example that stands out vividly for me is the streets of Queens across the river here or in other places outside the homes of immigrants that uh, DHS agencies are seeking to grab you know, and take away. I mean, these are the kinds of tactics that have been have been used on black and brown communities at home, immigrant communities at home. And then they started against protesters as well. And, you know, the time for tinkering is done, right? Armored vehicles on our streets, no. Um, so part of what our colleagues on, and we are calling for, um, and what, what so many allies and movements are calling for is an end to programs like this. And a point worth making, too, is that over the decades that we've seen 1033 play out, and even pre-1033 with military-esque presences domestically, is that it just seems to escalate. And we saw that play out in Portland, that the local law enforcement and the mayor and the governor were all asking for the federal presence to be wound down because it, it actually was making things worse. That's exactly right. You know, just a few days ago, the Justice Department announced this new law enforcement initiative that they said, again, was aimed at, quote unquote, reducing violent crime in American cities. And they're calling this one uh, Operation Legend. Um, and what that is, is essentially looks like an expansive version of the December 2019 operation. So that's exactly consistent with the constant ratcheting up instead of ratcheting down. Um, and, you know, we're, it looks like uh, the operation that began in December 2019, which was essentially under the auspices of the Justice Department, is now being joined by Homeland Security agents, Department of Homeland Security, and that's one of the things that we and our affiliates are on the watch out for. I actually also want to take a moment and go back to something you said, which is the involvement of the Department of Homeland Security or DHS. There's a history of lack of accountability over policing, particularly around black and brown communities. I'm wondering if you can just give a point about what we're paying attention to with the involvement of DHS. I'm so glad you asked this question because alongside the Justice Department uh, challenges and FBI and so on, you know, so many of us have been working on uh, seeking to shine a light on DHS abuses, not just now and under the Trump administration, for, but for longer. And I think it might help to have a little bit of understanding about DHS. So DHS arose out of a set of proposals um, made in 2002 by the Bush administration. And it was at the time the largest 
federal government reorganization of 22 different agencies with disparate mandates and missions into one behemoth entity that incorporated uh, citizenship and immigration uh, services, border enforcement, uh, homeland security, you know, investigatory agencies, and these new hybrid things called fusion centers, which were about being able to share information amongst federal, state, and local law enforcement, you know, thousands of entities around the country. And what the ACLU warned against at the time was the deep concerns about harms to communities of color and immigrant communities of overly broad mandates, excessive power, and lack of civil rights and civil liberties safeguards. And those are exactly the things that we have seen borne out in the intervening years, which is things like um, monitoring and surveillance of uh, Black Lives Matter activists, monitoring and surveillance of protests against family separation policies, uh, infiltration of mosques and other community spaces for Muslims and other Memsa communities, and a really vast infrastructure that incorporates, and this is really important, I think, incorporates what are essentially paramilitary forces Uh, Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol agencies are prime example. Paramilitary forces that President Trump and his henchmen uh, have, have been able to turn against protesters, against police brutality and systemic injustice. And I think one of the points that you're making here, too, is that the Trump administration has turned up the volume on a set of practices that actually are part of a much larger narrative since 9-11. And that's an area that you have spent a lot of time on. And speaking of which, I want to take a moment for the Constitution. What are the constitutional rights that we are most concerned about with this federal surge? What are we keeping an eye out? How are we looking at this with a legal lens? I love it. Let's spend more than a few minutes on the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let me take Portland as an example. What we saw there, what our affiliate allies and movement leaders saw there, were straight up violations of the Constitution, violations of the First Amendment right to protest uh, and speak, um, as well as the Fourth Amendment uh, right against unlawful seizure, uh, which is what that kidnapping essentially was, you know? Um, And so uh, along with with other, you know, Fourth Amendment violations. Because the Fourth Amendment is also having reasonable suspicion, right? That's right. Reasonable suspicion, no arrests uh, without probable cause. And so there were straight up constitutional violations in Portland, and that's what we're on the lookout for. And you know, want to prevent in other countries because what we have here with these constitutional violations is also that we've got a crisis of democracy 
Um, and we are in a fight, all of us, to, to save it um, and to guard against these kinds of harms being done to our communities. Hmm. You know, uh, one other point is sort of the historical analogies here. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, when I used to think about growing up as a student, um, a federal law enforcement presence. It was actually with a positive association. You know, the the one in my history books was of Ruby Bridges um, after Brown v. Board of Education when school integration was being undertaken and local authorities were not protecting these students. And Ruby Bridges was um, escorted by U.S. Marshals into the school um, and protected in some ways from uh, people who were not happy with that integration. And I'm curious if there are instances where a federal law enforcement presence is necessary and even a good thing. And how is that different from what we're experiencing right now? Molly, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot too, um, perhaps in particular because of uh, the death of Congressman John Lewis um, and his funeral, that op-ed that he published in the New York Times, uh, where he continued to lead and teach even after his death, um, exhorting us all to be what Dr. King and he called a beloved community, striving to live in equality and dignity and peace. And they were part of an earlier era, exactly as you were talking about, where federal um, agents were needed to help enforce court-ordered desegregation and to protect civil rights leaders, civil rights movement. Um, And there certainly have been times in uh, cities where an actual Justice Department civil rights division was critically important to weigh in on abuses being carried out by state and local police. That is so far from where we are now. And I think there's a point here also, which is that when we think about our laws and how Congress writes them and passes them, right, some of the claims about statutory authority to carry out these DHS and DOJ and other issues, they're very broad claims. You know, like clearly the feds are going beyond what the intent of the statutes was. But sometimes the scandal is how broadly written the laws can be and what they can be read by law enforcement wrongly to permit. And those are some of the things that we're also working on narrowing and seeking changes to. And is this one of the ways that we see there could be a check on this executive overreach through Congress? Certainly our colleagues in D.C. are working very hard to address these kinds of issues with and through Congress. But it's also really important to remember the work that our colleagues are doing, um, along with allies and others, to support calls for divestment from these kinds of abuses, abusive policies, practices and programs and reinvestment in beneficial programs that do not, do not result in in violations of civil rights and civil liberties. 
are there other things that can be done to stave off the this sort of federal surge, either on you know protesters, activists? Where is our hope? What can what comes next? There is actually a effort that we'd love for folks to get involved in, which is this menu of options that our colleagues have put together to help police divestment efforts. It's at, you know, www.aclu.org slash reinvest. And there are a variety of things that people can do to take action and to really Uh, help implement the things that are systemic, uh, the brutality, the systemic racism, to take the steps to create structural change and reform. So the bottom line is that our affiliates and we are monitoring what happens with so-called Operation Legend, which is the operation that uh, DOJ Justice Department announced to send additional federal forces to Chicago, Milwaukee, and other cities around the country. Uh, We're going to fight back against any constitutional violations that result. We're looking out to see what those agents do. But the thing to remember is that they're joining oftentimes local police forces that communities are already protesting. And so the concern is that the addition of these federal forces will further criminalize and over-police black and brown communities. It will fuel additional incarceration And it is exactly the opposite of what Black-led protests and protesters are demanding. And are we concerned at all about a sort of bait-and-switch where there is the pretense that they are there for, quote-unquote, law and order, but actually turn to protesters? We are very deeply concerned about that, indeed, Um, because uh, that is essentially what we saw in Portland. And it's essentially what we saw in Washington, D.C. And it is the implementation of a political tactic by Donald Trump. And so we want to guard against further paramilitary forces being sent in to police protesters, something for which they are improperly being deployed um, and have been deployed with abuses that violate the Constitution in Portland. Well, Hina, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to keep an eye out for whatever comes next, and we really appreciate your being with us. We know how busy you are. Thank you. It was my great pleasure to be on. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.